Chapter two hundred and thirty three of Varney the Vampire, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. Varney the Vampire, Volume three by thomas prescott prest chapter two hundred and thirty three the night attack the horrible conclusion i paused yet a moment for there came across me even then after i had gone so far a horrible dread of what i was about to do and a feeling that there might be consequences arising from it that would jeopardize me greatly Perhaps, even then, if a great accession of strength had come to my aid, mere bodily aid, I mean, I should have hesitated, and the victim would have escaped. But, as if to mock me, there came that frightful feeling of exhaustion, which felt so like the prelude to another death. I no longer hesitated. I turned the lock of the door, and I thought that I must be discovered. I left it open about an inch, and then flew back to my own chamber. I listened attentively. There was no alarm, no movement in any of the rooms. The same death-like stillness pervaded the house, and I felt that I was still safe. A soft gleam of yellow-looking light had come through the crevice of the door when I had opened it. It mingled strangely with the moonlight and i concluded correctly enough as i found afterwards that a light was burning in the chamber it was at least another ten minutes before i could sufficiently reassure myself to glide from my own room and approach that of the fated sleeper but at length i told myself that i might safely do so and the night was waning fast and if anything was to be accomplished it must be done at once before the first beams of early dawn should chase away the spirits of the night, and perhaps should leave me no power to act. What shall I be, I ask myself, after another four-and-twenty hours of exhaustion? Shall I have power, then, to make the election of what I will do, or what I will not? No, I may suffer the pangs of death again, and the scarcely less pangs of another revival. This reasoning, if it may be called reasoning, decided me, and with cautious and cat-like footsteps I again approached the bedroom door which I had opened. I no longer hesitated, but at once crossed the threshold and looked around me. It was the chamber of the youngest of my landlady's daughters, who, as far as I could judge, seemed to be about sixteen years of age but they had evidently been so struck with my horrible appearance that they had placed themselves as little as possible in my way so that i could not be said to be a very good judge of their ages or their looks i only knew she was the youngest because she wore her hair long and wore it in ringlets that were loose and streaming over the pillow on which she slept while her sister i remarked wore her hair plaited up and completely off her neck and shoulders I stood by the bedside and looked upon this beautiful girl in all the pride of her young beauty, so gently and quietly slumbering. Her lips were parted, 
as though some pleasant images were passing in her mind, and induced a smile even in her sleep. She murmured twice, too, a word which I thought was the name of someone, perchance the idol of her young heart. But it was too indistinct for me to catch it, nor did I care to hear that which was perhaps a very cherry secret indeed mattered not to me. I made no pretensions to her affections, however strongly in a short time I might stand in her abhorrence. One of her arms, which was exquisitely rounded, lay upon the coverlet. A neck, too, as white as alabaster, was partially exposed to my gaze. But I had no passions. It was food I wanted. I sprang upon her. There was a shriek, but not before I had secured a draught of life-blood from her neck. It was enough. I felt it dart through my veins like fire, and I was restored. From that moment I found out what was to be my sustenance. It was blood. The blood of the young and the beautiful. The house was thoroughly alarmed but not before I had retired to my own chamber. I was but partially dressed, and those few clothes I threw off me, and getting into my bed I feigned to be asleep, so that when a gentleman who slept likewise in the house, but of whose presence I knew nothing, knocked hardly at my door, I affected to awaken in a fright, and called out, What is it? What is it? For God's sake, tell me if it is a fire. No, no, but get up, sir, get up. There's someone in the place. An attempt at murder, I think, sir. I arose and opened the door. So by the light he carried, he saw that I had to dress myself. He was but half attired himself, and he carried his sword beneath his arm. It is a strange thing, he said, but I have heard a shriek of alarm. And I likewise, said I, but I thought it was a dream. Help, 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 cried the widow, who had risen but stood upon the threshold of her own chamber. Thieves! Thieves! By this time I had got on sufficient of my apparel that I could make an appearance, and likewise with my sword in my hand I sallied out into the corridor. Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, cried the landlady, did you hear anything? A shriek, madam, said my fellow lodger. Have you looked into your daughter's chambers? The room of the youngest daughter was the nearest, and into that she went at once. In another moment she appeared on the threshold again, with a face as white as a sheet. Then she wrung her hands and said, Murder! Murder! My child is murdered! My child is murdered, Master Harding! Which I found was the name of my fellow lodger. Fling open one of the windows and call for the watch, he said to me, and I will search the room and woe be to any one that I may find within its walls unauthorized. I did as he desired, and called the watch, but the watch came not. And then, upon a second visit to her daughter, the landlady found she had only fainted, and that she had been deceived in thinking she was murdered by the sudden sight of the blood upon her neck. So the house was restored to something like quiet again, and the morning began now near at hand. Mr. Harding retired to his chamber, and I to mine, leaving the landlady and her eldest daughter assiduous in their attentions to the younger. 
how wonderfully revived I felt. I was quite a new creature when the sunlight came dancing into my apartment. I dressed and was about to leave the house when Mr. Harding came out of one of the lower rooms and intercepted me. Sir, he said, I have not the pleasure of knowing you, but I have no doubt that an ordinary feeling of chivalry will prompt you to do all in your power to obviate the dread of such another night as the past. Dread, sir, said I. The dread of what? A very proper question, he said, but one I can hardly answer. The girl states she was awakened by someone biting her neck, and in proof of the story she actually exhibits the marks of teeth, and so terrified is she that she declares that she shall never be able to sleep again. You astonish me. Oh, no doubt it is sufficiently astonishing to excuse even doubts. But if you and I, who are both inmates of the house, were to keep watch tonight in the corridor, it might have the effect of completely quieting the imagination of the young girl, and perhaps result in the discovery of this nocturnal disturber of the peace. Certainly, said I, command me in any way. I shall have great pleasure. Shall it be understood, then, that we meet at eleven in your apartment or in mine? Whichever you may please to consider the most convenient, sir. I mention my own, then, which is the furthest door in the corridor, and where I shall be happy to see you at eleven o'clock. There was something about this young man's manner which I did not altogether like and yet I could not come to any positive conclusion as to whether he suspected me, and therefore I thought it would be premature to fly, when perhaps there would be really no occasion for doing so. On the contrary, I made up my mind to wait the result of the evening, which might, or might not, be disastrous to me. At all events, I considered that I was fully equal to taking my own part and if by the decrees of destiny I was really to be, as it were, repudiated from society, and made to endure a new, strange, and horrible existence, I did not see that I was called upon to be particular how I rescued myself from difficulties that might arise. Relying, then, upon my own strength, and my own unscrupulous use of it, I awaited with tolerable composure the coming of night. During the day I amused myself by walking about, and noting the remarkable changes which so short a period as two years had made in London, but these happened to be two years most abundantly prolific in change. The feelings and habits of people seemed to have undergone a thorough revolution, which I was more surprised at when I learned by what thorough treachery the restoration of the exiled family was effected the day wore on. I felt no need of refreshment, and I began to feel my own proper position, and to feel that occasionally a draught of delicious life-blood, such as I had quaffed the night before, was fresh marrow to my bones. I could see when I entered the house where I had made my temporary home, that notwithstanding that I considered my appearance wonderfully improved, that feeling was not shared in by others for the whole family shrunk from me, as though there had been a most frightful contamination in my touch, 
and as though the very air I had breathed was hateful and deleterious. I felt convinced that there had been some conversation concerning me, and that I was rather more than suspected. I certainly then could have left the place easily and quietly, but I had a feeling of defiance, which did not enable me to do so. I felt as if I were an injured being, and ought to resist a something that looked like oppression. Why, I said to myself, have I been rescued from the tomb to be made the sport of a malignant destiny? My crime was a great one, but surely I suffered enough when I suffered death as an expiation of it, and I might have been left to repose in the grave. The feelings that have since come over me held no place in my imagination, but with a kind of defiant desperation, I felt as if I should like to defeat the plan by which I was attempted to be punished, and even in the face of providence itself, to show that it was a failure entailing far worse consequences upon others than upon me. This was my impression, so I would not play the coward and fly into the first flash of danger. I sat in my own room until the hour came for my appointment with Mr. Harding, and then I walked along the corridor with a confident step, and let the hilt end of my scabbard clank along the floor. I knocked boldly at the door, and I thought there was a little hesitation in his voice as he bade me walk in, but this might have been only my imagination. He was seated at a table fully dressed, and in addition to his sword, there was lying upon the table before him a large holster pistol, nearly half the size of a carbine. "'You are well prepared,' said I, as I pointed to it. "'Yes,' he said, "'and I mean to use it.' "'What do they want now?' I said. "'What do who want?' "'I don't know,' I said. But I thought I heard someone call you by name from below. Indeed? Excuse me a moment. Perhaps they have made some discovery. There was wine upon the table. And while he was gone, I poured a glass of good Rhenish down the barrel of the pistol. I wiped it carefully with the cuff of my coat, so there was no appearance upon the barrel of anything of the sort. And when he came back, he looked at me very suspiciously, as he said, Nobody called me. How could you say I was called? Because I thought I heard you called. I suppose it is allowable for human nature to be fallible now and then. Yes, but then I am so surprised how you could make such a mistake. So am I. It was rather a difficult thing to answer this, and looking at me very steadily, he took up the pistol and examined the priming. Of course, that was all right, and he appeared to be perfectly satisfied. There will be two chairs and a table, he said, placed in the corridor, so that we can sit in perfect ease. I will not anticipate that anything will happen, but if it should, I can only say that I will not be backward in the use of my weapons. I don't doubt it, said I, and commend you accordingly. That pistol must be a most formidable weapon. Does it ever misfire? Not that I know of, he said. I have loaded it with such extraordinary care that it amounts to almost an impossibility that it should. Will you take some wine? 
at this moment there came a loud knocking at the door of the house i saw an expression of satisfaction come over his face and he sprang to his feet holding the pistol in his grasp do you know the meaning of that knocking said i at such an hour and at the same time with a sweep of my arm i threw his sword off the table and beyond his reach yes he said rather excitedly you are my prisoner it was you who caused the mischief and confusion last night the girl is ready to swear to you and if you attempt to escape i'll blow your brains out fire at me said i and take the consequences but the threat is sufficient and you shall die for your temerity i drew my sword and he evidently thought his danger imminent for he at once snapped the pistol in my face of course it only flashed in the pan but in one moment my sword went through him like a flash of light it was a good blade the jew had sold me the hilt struck against his breastbone and he shrieked bang 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 came again at the outer door of the house i withdrew the reeking blade dashed it into the scabbard just in time to prevent my landlady from opening the door which she was almost in the act of doing i seized her by the back of the neck and hurled her to a considerable distance and then opening the door myself i stood behind it and let three men rush into the house after which i quickly left it and was free End of chapter 233